Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals, and when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or, at minimum, by face, we are collaborative people and we sustain everyone in our community. Everyone in our community. No one left behind. That's who we are when we are small enough and close enough. We collaborate. Today, on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, our guest will be a man described as the modern John Muir, and his name is Obi Kaufman, author of a number of books, one of which we'll be focusing more on today, called The Forests of California. I invite you to text or call in during the broadcast at 650-TALLY-HO. That's 650-TALLY-HO. It sort of rings, doesn't it? Before our unique interview, some news and notes in psychology and medicine. There are four topics which are on the list of the list of topics we're supposed to avoid and not at all ever talk about. Religion, money, sex, and politics. Do we know why? Do we know why we are not supposed to talk about religion? What is there about the topic of religion which we're afraid of? Do you ever talk about religion? Who do you talk to about religion? Do you ever ask a person, a friend, what is your religion? When was the last time you said to somebody, hey, what's your religion? Do you talk about your own religion and the place it has in your life? Who do you talk to about your own religion? Now, of course, I assume that some of you talk to your priests, your ministers, your rabbis, your, your mentors, those people who are paid professionals, if you don't mind my pointing out that they're paid. But what about just in everyday life? Why is it that religion is one of the no-no topics? And what about those of you who are atheists? Ah, being an atheist is so scorned in the United States that we don't even know what percentage of us are atheists. I looked it up on Google. Estimates range from 2% to 35% of the population. And what are these atheists thinking? What do they believe in? What do they do when times are tough? When the rest of the population prays, what are their thoughts? Maybe you'd like to talk to one. When was the last time you met and spoke to an atheist? I say, just for the fun of it, find an atheist and talk with them about their beliefs. Challenge yourself. Now, another one of the, of the taboo topics. Let's talk money. Ever notice, as I do, that people rarely talk 
about the amount of money they make, how much or little money they have in the bank? Children don't, often don't even know the, the answer to these questions regarding their own parents. Hey, how much does your dad make? Does your mom make money? How much does your mom make? No, that doesn't happen. What is the danger in being transparent about one's financial condition? Are we afraid that if people know we have a little bit of money, somebody will come and take it? Are we afraid that if people know how much we make, they'll think well of us or poorly of us or not of us? What's the fear? What is the fear? Are we letting fear run our lives and maintain taboo topics? Next, politics. Politics. Have you ever asked your parents who they voted for? Has, has someone ever asked you, hey, who'd you vote for in the last election? Are you hesitant to talk about politics with someone you know who has different politics than you? Do you find yourself listening to TV news programs that only agree with your own politics? Are you open to hearing some other political point of view? Do you, if you have children, do you talk politics with your children? And in what way do you do it? Do you do it to brainwash them into your politics? Or do you do it to teach them about politics in general and let them form their own opinions? And the fourth topic, of course, sex. Sex is perhaps the most cringeworthy of all the topics. Imagine sitting over coffee with friends and openly talking about your sex life. Oh yeah, last night when I was making love, blah, 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 blah. Of course, nowadays, if you'd be sitting and talking with your friends about sex, you'd be sitting six feet away, and thus you'd have to talk in a loud voice. Hey Fred, I just can't wait to tell you about a new position my wife thought of last night. No, not. I don't think so. Since we don't talk about sex, where do we learn about sex? Do we learn about sex from books? Do we learn about sex in hygiene class as I did as a kid? You know, we, we may instinctively know how to have sex, but we sure instinctively don't know how to make love. Very different. Oh my gosh, I'm watching some uh, binging a little bit on Netflix and I'm watching about uh, the, the 11th century where people were very matter-of-fact about sex. A woman or a man might walk over to one another and say, hey, you feel like humping tonight? It was sort of like, hey, if you want to have a, a glass of beer together? Well, I, that doesn't happen in our world. This is an unspoken topic. And I ask you, where are the young ones learning how to make love? And I'm not talking about having sex. I'm talking about making love. If no one ever talks about it. Books, school, pornography. Can you imagine if the kids of America are learning how to make love by watching pornography? Pornography isn't about making love. Pornography is about having sex. Very different. I think it's high time we took the taboo topics out of the closet and into the dining room.
What do you think? Send me a text. Please, send me a text. What do you think about taking the taboo topics out of the closet? Send me a text at 650-TALLY-HO. 650-TALLY-HO. Now for our interview. Our esteemed guest today is conservationist and author Obi Kaufman. Obi was born in Hollywood to an astrophysicist father and a clinical psychologist mother. I can't wait to talk to him about growing up with a mom who's a clinical psychologist, since I'm a clinical psychologist. I'll get some different perspectives on what my kids went through. Yes, Obi's family then moved from Southern California to Danville, and while living there, he spent a lot of time exploring Mount Diablo State Park. He went on to study at the University of California, Santa Barbara, majored in biology, but switched to visual arts after finding inspiration in wildlife painting and the rock art of the Chumash people. Kaufman is presently a conservationist and has given talks across California on ecology and the preservation of nature. By the way, Obi's first book, The California Field Atlas?, was a surprise commercial success. And I'll tell you why it's a surprise when you see Obi's books. The one I was reading over the weekend, 605 pages of writing and paintings that he did. That first book sold out in two printings. There was pent-up demand. It became a regional bestseller, and he was the recipient of numerous California awards. Other books include The State of Water, Understanding California's Most Precious Resource. It was released in June of 2019, followed by California Land's Trilogy, and one of which will be on today. The trilogy is The Forests of California, The Coasts of California, and The Deserts of California. I mean, if you want to know about California in these ways, these are the books for you. I mean, (laughs) they're awesome. And I don't say that often. I've been doing this for, what, 15, 17 years, and I've read some great books by wonderful authors. But this is in another whole category, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, I I kid you not. Today we're going to be talking about the forests of California. As I said, over 600 pages of Obi's art. It's a a magnum opus, and it bespeaks of a lifetime of work and it's indeed breathtaking. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Obi. Oh my goodness, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that very generous introduction, and I am just so thrilled to be on your show. Thank you. Obi, it's my thrill as well, and I meant every single word, as I'm sure you you could tell of what I said. Great. Now I'm all excited to talk about religion, money, politics, and sex. <laughs> well, we're going to have to save that for another program, and I'll have, okay. be happy to have you all back right. unless you can weave it in to uh, the forest. I'm, I'm of a ca- student of ecology, Dr. Miller. You'll be, you'll be surprised what I can weave into the, you know, the understanding of nature as a larger thing. Well, let's weave it into the forests of California. Sure. What do you want to tell us about how you started this book? I started this book as I've started all of my books um, from a sense of deep love for this place, for this more than human world, analyzing and 
analyzing and and considering from my own vocation, which is, uh, you know, as you pointed out, this mixture of art and science, this consilience, as Dr. Edward Wilson called it in his book, The Unity of Knowledge, consilience between the world of the humanities and the world of the sciences, where the truths converge. Uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about the three types of truth, where you have the personal, the political, and the objective truth. I'll leave the physical sciences, their objective truths, what I'm uh, going for always is how I do art, but I follow science, if that makes sense at all. I believe that science is a big enough basket for all philosophy to eventually be encompassed within. Okay, so, so California then becomes this metaphor for me in my investigations of nature, both its beauty and its scientific integrity. Uh, Ecology is the particular field of science that I am uh, most fascinated by because I find the most mystery there. Uh, Mystery on many levels. Ecology is the study of the relationship between elements within any given system. Repeat that sentence again for everybody, please. That's an important sentence. Ecology, yes. Ecology is the study of relationships between individuals or individual entities or objects and, and their subjects within any given system, any given living system, to be more precise. Okay, so we're talking about interactions between the biotic and the abiotic at scale. And this is how... This is how ecosystems work and ecosystems ecosystems are what we all rely on every day for every moment of our existence, which is which is uh, which is entirely uh, upon us then to 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 protect, to protect, to learn about, to and and and. And how do we do that? How do we then learn about it? We learn about, or or why then? What is the what is the what is the human compulsion then to learn about it? And for me, it is about a simple question, an investigation of how to be more from this place, this place that I fell in love with when I was young, scampering along the waterfalls and chasing tarantulas on the slopes of Mount Diablo as a boy learning how to paint a sunset learning how to paint a uh, the feather of the northern flicker learning that the sum of its parts it being the more than human natural world is so much greater than the individual biologies and as i and as i explore out i am actually exploring more in i am I am seeking more the nature of consciousness, the nature of sentience within and without the more than human world. As I am in the forest, I am thinking of how there are subjectivities there besides my own. You know, as a, as a, as a psychologist yourself, you know that, that these words, consciousness and sentience are, we hoard them, don't we, for our own little species, for our own little investigations, for our own little parameters. Um, we, do, we have no vocabulary. We have, we have very little scientific language. 
to reach out beyond our own experience and to recognize that nature itself is not only alive, but it thinks, it's self-aware, and it's self-reflective, maybe even containing some of the sapience, a different level of thinking from sentience. So, mm-hmm. Give us examples mm-hmm. of nature well, thinking, nature being aware, mm-hmm. and nature being sentient. Mm-hmm. Share with us what you've seen and felt and heard. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's all at scale. Um, and what I mean by that is that th- there is more to a forest than a bunch of trees. If you were to pick up a cup of soil, that healthy black soil and say an old growth forest of, of ponderosa and uh, let's call it a mixed mixed conifer woodland in uh, where you are now mendocino county uh inside of that cup of soil there are more individual microorganisms than there are people who have ever lived inside that one cup of soil inside that one cup of soil there are enough fungal networks what uh, mycologists might call mycelial networks of these little organisms that transport nutrients between the uh, wood body of the plant and the, and the uh, soil nutrients, the chemistry inside the soil uh, acting as a conveyor. These little mycelial threads are so small and they are so abundant that within that one cup of soil, if you were to if you were to if you were somehow able to manage to 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 extract every single one of those mycelial filaments and lay them end to end, it might be kilometers long. Uh, and this 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 amount of life, this sheer quantity of life, covers the entire terrestrial globe to an inch of about ten centimeters on average, right? And if you were to take all of that mycelium out of the soil itself and smoothed it under some impossibly um, massive steamroller and made it a pancake, all the mycelial filament and all the soils of the world and made it, it, it made it the, you know, the width of a penny, it might be big enough to cover half of the known universe. That is how much life is in the soil. And it is so complex, the lichenizing processes of evolution. Remember, these mycelial have survived every mass extinction since the dawn of life four billion years ago. In fact, it was the mycelial that crept up on the terrestrial surface out of the ocean that made way. Are you, can, you hear me? Yes. can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Yeah. Okay, I, terrific. Did, you... I, did I zap into the mycelial sphere for a moment? <laughs> you did. Into you the did. Rhizosphere? And mm-hmm. You did. And just as I was about to ask you, when, mm. when you take a handful, as you said before, Mm-hmm. And there are millions, you're saying, mm-hmm. millions of organisms in there. Yeah, bi- billions. Billions, thank you. Mm-hmm. Billions of organisms. Mm-hmm. It, w- the first thing I thought of is it, it sounds like almost like picking up a brain mm-hmm. which, has, which has billions of cells in it. 
uh, Dr. Miller, we're connecting. We're connecting. That was exactly my next sentence, in fact, that the forest, the forest is so complicated that it, it rivals the complexity in the most complex systems that we know, including the human brain, including any uh, number of cosmologic phenomena in, in, in any corner of the universe. It, it is, the forest itself is that complex. And okay, so that's that would be point one. If we're going to have to build a case today towards sentience, you know, it's it's like okay, point one, we have to establish the complexity of the system. Well, let me ask a question then, before, if you don't mind. Sure. You've got this handful of organisms, right? Billions of them, right? Are the they... soil? It's the soil itself is more than half. More than half of the mass in your hand is alive. The half that's alive, the mm-hmm. half that's alive, mm-hmm. is it communicating with one another? Are mm-hmm. they communicating with one another? Oh, uh, tremendously, with tremendous efficiency. Please tell us about that. That is that is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. I don't think how many, few of us listening to this understand that that you pick up. You pick up a handful of soil, there are billions of organisms in there, and they're communicating with each other in somewhat the similar way that our human brain is communicating with all parts of the brain and the body. Wow. Yeah, the processes are strikingly analogous. Yeah, it's very, it's true. It's true. This is how forests work. Um, trees don't grow by themselves. Trees work best in cooperation with one another. And this would lead us to our second point if we were building some sort of argument towards sentience, which I think we should. And and I'd love to eventually get around to like the rights of nature. If we are going to call, for example, watersheds alive. If we, as they are experimenting on, you know, you've got politics in the name of your podcast here. So we've got, we've got, they are experimenting in other countries, including New Zealand, Canada, and Mexico, uh, and India about uh, legal personhood towards watersheds, for example. The waters, the river's right to flow clean, clear, and cold. Well, you sure, seat. you sure have my vote because if you could, <laughs> give, if you could give personhood to mm-hmm. a corporation, mm-hmm. which, which mm-hmm. we have under Citizens United. Fascinating precedent. Then we sh- yeah. and 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 a corporation is not a sentient being. It's a bunch of fonts on something we call paper or on mm. a on a computer. And we've yes. given personhood to that entity. Mm-hmm. Certainly, we could give personhood to a river, mm-hmm. right? Well, uh, uh, the Karak Tribal Council has, in fact, done that for the Klamath River. The Klamath River is protected by the Tribal Council. And if we do respect the sovereign nations of our precious indigenous cultures in California, as we should, uh, we, we should, uh, I, I encourage the, uh, the state powers that be to, to follow in line and do that. And it looks like, it looks like we're on our way to do that with the removal of the four dams near the headwaters of the Klamath River on the on the border of Oregon and California, we are giving the salmon, the Chinook, uh, the Coho, their last big, biggest chance at 
survival into the 22nd century with California being part of their extant habitat range. So that looks like it's on its way. And that's a fantastic point of pride that we can all take as Californians that we are in fact seeing uh, uh, and reacting to our adapting values in the uh, face of what might be the perception of intrinsic value over utilitarian value, which is, uh, which is, and I don't use this word lightly, beautiful. Um, I like so, to just, I just want to uh, yeah. underline something that you said by repeating it. Sure. Which is the difference between intrinsic value, intrinsic value, intrinsic value, and material value. Right. It's like a safety deposit box. Or utilitarian. Right, 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 right. If we are like this, this is how, this is how we're going to make it through this bottleneck, Dr. Miller. I'm completely convinced of it. You know, like as, as we transform our economy from this linear economy into a circular economy, which we must, of course, otherwise the, you know, I mean, the lifespan of our carbon based linear economy is only going to be 300 years, but in those 300 years, we have wounded the biosphere in such a way that it will take thousands of years to recover. In fact, the decisions that we are making right now over the next couple of decades will inform the quality of our residency going forward for the next several hundred years. And, uh, you know, as you know, as well as anyone in the state, we now have not incompetent leadership in Sacramento that are actually has a plan. The getting to neutral plan by 2045 is a good one. In fact, if you download that PDF, which I encourage all of our listeners to go do right now, getting getting going getting to neutral, the California plan to get to neutral by 2045. It's uh, it reads not unlike poetry. If we gave personhood to rivers. Yeah, that's and you step two. and and Obi Kaufman had his way. What else in nature would we give personhood to, mm. and what would that look mm. like? Mm. Mm. Well, uh, one of the greatest adventure stories ever told, in my opinion, was uh, and told so well by one of my favorite authors, perhaps my favorite novelist of the twentieth century, would be Wallace Stegner. And he wrote a book called Beyond the Hundredth Meridian, John Wesley Powell. And, you know, I grew up as a big fan of Lord of the Rings. You know, I loved, I loved those tales of dragons and swords. And I still do. But, um, but uh, in fact, you know, Lord of the Rings was a big influence on my, on, on the way that I uh, approach California. You want to see a fantastic adventure. You want to see a fantastic setting full of, full of epic romance. I'll give you you know the the place that blows all of that fantasy away it's called california it's it's incredible in any case okay so let's go back to let's get back to john wesley powell and his trip down the colorado river in 1860 when uh when he a one-armed civil war veteran uh, uh took a uh took a crew um, uh, four boats down down the Colorado River, a river that's never been mapped. And he, 
I mean, can you imagine going down that river not knowing what's around the next bend? <laughs> With one arm? With one arm. I mean, it's it's in a it, and and in the hands of such a uh, uh, capable writer like Stegner. Uh, yeah, go do yourself a favor and get a copy of that book. Um, Beyond the Hundred Meridian. Uh, uh, John Wesley Powell went on to become the uh, the first director of the United States Geologic Survey (USGS), and what he said is that everything beyond a hundredth meridian, which is which is what really defines the West, the Western United States, everything from the from the Ark and St. Louis West, uh, the West will always and forever be defined by aridity. And uh, he proposed, and he mapped this out, and it's a fascinating map, that instead of dividing the states up by, you know, well, the borders, the borders are, 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 every border to every state has a funny story about how it was drawn. And, and it's too bad, because it's largely an arbitrary process. If he had his way, uh, the states would have been drawn up as watersheds as unions of watersheds that would then put that as the central uh, focus of so much of uh, industry going forward into what was inevitably at that point to become modernity. And so I go back again and again to the idea of the watershed, the watershed being a single uh, unit of geography by which all of the water drains a basin, if you will, from ridgeline to ridgeline and every, all spots in between that center around a particular water course or a system of water courses and their tributaries. And within these watersheds, as isolated as, isolated as they can be from other watersheds, we begin to see particular manifestations of the ecosystems within those watersheds, character. Um, this, in fact, isolation, geographic isolation, is how speciation occurs. Uh, there are different ways to sort of parse this out. I often think of the California floristic province as a nice big unit of space. In fact, it's the it's the core of of most of my work. Now, the deserts of California don't actually exist within the CFP, the California Floristic Province. California Floristic Province is everything west of the Sierra Nevada, the longest contiguous mountain range in North America that has defined this place over the past uh, 10 million years or so since California has begun to resemble its current tectonic configuration. And within that time frame, California has become its own thing. The uniqueness of California rivals uh, anywhere on the planet is one of uh, uh, UNESCO's 25 biodiversity hotspots. And while all of those, all of our natural landscape types, every single one of them is either threatened or endangered, while they're all threatened or endangered, we have a very low extinction rate. In fact, our extinction rate is less than 1% right now. And now while 
that might that might sound oh great there might be some laurels to rest on there's no there's no laurels to rest on it's very dangerous and it's very difficult for a science to for a scientist to announce that a species is actually extinct so the jury is out on in so many ways oh, across so many species but if it is true that our that our analyzable extinction rate is less than 1% that means it is all still here and if it's all still here, that means we have hope because hope in that dimension is a, is a function of time. Hope exists in temporality, right? If there's no time, there's no hope, but there's time. And if we have time, that means that we're forewarned. And if we're forewarned, we're forearmed. We've got the, we've got, we're learning the science. We're learning the solutions. They're all on the table right now. And if we can, and I think this is an inroad to get back to your question about what sentience and, and or, or, or not sentience rather, but, but, but legal personhood, like, like where, where do we begin to draw those boundaries? It comes from this community that you talk about and the magical alchemy that happens there. Isn't that right? When we, when we, when we break through this sort of noise of talking about our rights. We have the right to extract. We have the right to develop, you know, all of this tantrum-like behavior and recognize that with every single one of our rights, we have a corresponding responsibility that is, that is, that must be attended to. You know, you, you think about like, what is freedom? Uh, Yes. Most people it's like, well, freedom is like, I get to do what I want. It's like, well, no, that's wrong. That's a child's answer. What freedom is. Freedom is the agency to attend to your own social responsibilities without some sort of government entity telling you what those responsibilities are. That was, that was a big paragraph, Dr. Miller. I'm getting, getting a little worked up here on a Tuesday morning. You're um, doing terrific. <laughs> you're, doing, you're, you're doing great. I'm engrossed. R- rarely do I keep my big mouth shut for such long periods of time, Obi, and it's an absolute well, pleasure. You, sir. But, but, okay. Okay. Now, are we headed in a direction where we're going to give our listeners the most of what you have to offer in a short period of time? Ah, are we? Okay, because I took us off on a sort of what political track with the question about personhood for different parts. And uh, and we had come from talking about uh, about the uh, analogy between uh, a handful of dirt and microorganisms and the brain (laughs) because of communication. But I want to stop us and pause right now because I want I want to focus in on what you want our listeners to most learn from you what do you want what do you want us to hear uh from you and during this time because rather than what i want us to hear which is what the through my questions of course i'll i'll keep going with my questions because i'm like that but <laughs> but uh i i want really want to know you know what do you want to really most want to talk about do you want to talk more about about sentience do you want to talk about the fires and the place of them do you, mm. what do you, what what's the what what are our listeners going to benefit most from from you today well i uh yeah you know i th- that that's that's a pretty broad question there and i think that um uh yes uh, i will answer it with an equally broad answer um Good. that uh, that uh, uh there is uh quite a bit of despair 
in the uh, in the zeitgeist, if you will, the ghost of now, isn't there? As if, as if, and I and I hear this, um, and I hear this in the um, uh, from 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 all from from the broad spectrum that is my community, right? From from uh, you know, which which is one. Okay, so. There's so much divisiveness that is sold to us, Dr. Miller, you know, and, and, um, I, uh, really believe that for every point of despair, there is a point of hope and by analyzing the history of how we got here where we will we will be what will be revealed is where we are one and two what the future may look like and how beautiful it can be because um because of what we have learned because of what we know and despite all of the dread that comes from this sort of weight of existential disaster that is coming over us right now with, with this emerging uninhabitable earth. Um, it is yet possible given the complexity. I mean, that would get back to the point number two, right? We were ta- start talking about the nature of complexity. And in complex system, emergence always happens. In complex systems, emergence always happens. Emergent phenomena. We are just as likely to teeter now towards catastrophic failure as we are towards catastrophic success. Mm-hmm. There is a good probability that we might leave the natural world of California in better shape at the end of the 21st century than we did at the end of the 20th century which is an exciting thing to say. And I am into exciting ideas. <laughs> I am, I, I, I think that doom <laughs> is so boring. <laughs> Give me the hope. Give me the excitement. We can do this. I mean, think of the water infrastructure, my second book, state of water, uh, which is the story of, what we have done with the single most altered aspect of our natural topography, the the water landscape of California in the past 170 years since Marshall found that uh, uh, gold nugget in the American River. Um, what we have done with water over the past 170 years rivals anything that human beings have ever done anywhere at any time. It rivals the pyramids. It rivals, uh, yeah, I'm going to say that. It rivals the pyramids. It rivals the Great Wall of China. What we have done with thousands of miles of canals, dozens of dams, is that we have altered the geography of the earthen landscape of California to suit our own industry and in so doing have made the most productive agricultural area in the world in a place that only gets 7 to 13 inches of rain a year uh, the Central Valley 
which is a feat of such industry, such vision, and such uncompromised ambition. And yet that feat, that incredible achievement will only be matched by how it again transforms over the next 100 to 175 years, perhaps even as little as 50 or 60 years, as we realize and as we change and adapt to the challenges and opportunities now at our door. Uh, And I'm talking about climate breakdown because of global warming. I'm talking about uh, population increase. I'm talking about changing needs, changing values, realizing that biodiversity itself is the true gold of California. It's not that pretty rock in the river. The true gold of California is the biodiversity. And the measure of that stewardship, well, to echo what I said earlier before, is will determine the quality of our residency here in centuries to come. What changes in this monumental endeavor that you have described for us that that uh, of the magnitude of the pyramids and the Great mm-hmm. Wall of China, what changes in this system need to occur if, mm-hmm. we are, if we are to sustain what we call California? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, there, there, there is a... Um, there's an adolescent economist inside of me that wants to yell, the problem is capitalism. The problem is not capitalism. If I were to say the problem is capitalism, I'd be dismissed out of hand as a communist <laughs> because the, because it's sort of a polar, polarized and simplified version. I believe that the problem is the story that society tells itself, what the citizenry tells itself about the myth of prosperity and the potential of wealth inside an unjust system of economic disparity based on ecocide and resource extraction. It's a complicated matter, Dr. Miller, now uh, water in the, in the Central Valley, where we have, for example, conservation technology that uh, we're calling it drip line irrigation. It used to be that uh, not too long ago, in fact, just 30 or 40 years ago, that flood irrigation was the most common way that farmers would would tend to their crops in the valley, that you put everything under six inches of water. And you might think that this is wasteful, but it's actually also happening. And I love this ecological thinking that two things can be happening at once, that it can be conservative and wasteful at the same time. What is actually happening is although not all of that water is going directly to the root system of the individual crop, it is actually feeding the aquifer too. With drip line irrigation, we have incredibly, we have, we, we're saving water and we're growing more crops than ever, but we're expanding our crops, mostly almonds, to uh, desert soils that have never been, um, that have never been farmed before, that are not good for farming. We are going into the Westlands of, of Kern County and we are developing 
uh, tens of thousands of acres of almonds, more than any other uh, nut. And we are, uh, and so so more farmland is 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 requiring more water demand, and we are we are we are stretching the whole system to its limits. And when I say we, what I really want to say, and these are not yeoman Jeffersonian farmers out here, okay? 60% of the farms in the San Joaquin Valley are owned by venture capitalists from the East in these massive corporations, okay? So these are, this, this, isn't, this, is, this is money, okay? So this is money that is not, that is wrapped up in the rhetoric of agricultural tradition inside the uh, inside the Central Valley, and and to top it, it all off, we have to talk about groundwater. California can't seem to get its head around groundwater. Sixty percent of all water that feeds all crops in in, in San Joaquin Valley is coming from a one-time spend Pleistocene aquifer underneath the valley, and now wells are going down to twenty-five hundred feet. To find water um, when just 30 years ago you could go down 200 feet so uh, that and and now with land subsidence and everything the whole top we are changing the landscape fundamentally of of the central valley and and then there's the issue of salt the one thing that has destroyed civilizations before all agricultural civilizations salting is the is uh, of the soil is perhaps the the number one uh, enemy as so uh, brilliantly laid out in this in the seminal work a Cadillac desert by Mark Reisner if you want to uh, understand what a danger salinity is is in agricultural soil so uh, time is running out for us to change the way we do things and in in Central Valley agriculture, and what that does is is that that again comes around to the idea of community. When I wrote the State of Water, Understanding Most California's Most Precious Resource, I I wrote that subtitle with the understanding that uh, California's most precious resource was water. I mean, that's the implication, right? But what I found after touring that book up and down the state, I mean, I used to tour live. I, I, you know, in, in another reality, I'm giving, you know, you and I are having this uh, conversation in the same room. There is an alchemy. The community happens when you are looking into the eyes of another person, right? So I am touring the state of water, perhaps, um, uh, you know, California's most contentious issue. I wrote a little book about it and I'm an artist from Santa Barbara, right? So I'm, I'm uh, uh, going up and down the state realizing that it's not water that's our most precious resource, it's, in fact, the integrity of our community, our ability to tell each other a story, our ability to bestow the authority of truth upon other members, engaged members of our citizenry, and not, and not back into the posture of um, fearful tribalism. You know, with water, you've got the north, the south, and the central. Like, those are the three big tribes of the water wars. As as it's being fed to us in so many lies, we're all in this together. We're all in the California floristic province. We all rely on these magnificent watersheds for different reasons. We have, we have the, we have, 
been presented so many false equivalencies. The idea of farm, you get either get farms or fish. One of the two. That's all you get. Come on, that's a lie. The Delta smelt, a federally endangered species in the, in the Sacramento Valley, uh, I mean the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta system, is uh, prevents by, by nature of that Im- so important law, 1973, the Endangered Species Act, pre- has prevented so much water theoretically prevented this is it's a very complex issue for a, a, a number a, a smelt is a tiny well it's related to the minnow uh so you'll see you'll see in the water wars this 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 idea like we're not getting our water because people are choosing a minnow over over uh you know jobs family lifestyle tradition in the central valley and that's not exactly true either. Or is it fair? What is the Delta smelt? The Delta smelt is, I mean, protecting the Delta smelt means protecting clean water. It, protecting the clean water that filters pollution into the healthy bay tidal wetlands. I mean, what about the people of the Delta? Are they not as important is their traditions and lifestyles not as important providing the legacy for, of the intrinsic and invaluable natural landscapes and protecting the local industries of tourism fishing and recreation biodiversity that the smelt represents is and should be our number one conservation priority going forward it is so core to so many challenges that face us. I want to uh, interrupt and ask a, uh, a possibly very naive question, but I'm going Please. to do it anyway. <laughs> how do we lose water? I mean, how mm. do we literally lose water? Mm. When water, if we are, if we are a system. Mm-hmm. If you want to call it the planet or Gaia, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we're within an encapsulated system, right? How do we actually lose water? Where does it go to if we lose it? Doesn't all water stay within the system in some way? That's great. That's right. We've only got one amount of water on the planet. If you were to take all of the water on the planet and make a big ball out of the water, it'd be about 780 miles across like a big sphere of water. Okay. <laughs> if you were to take all the fresh water, it would, it would, it would be a ball of water about 35 miles across. So that's, that's, that's the, that's the number here. Right. Um, so your question, especially as it, as it, uh, as it pertains to California is, uh, old, <laughs> uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, somewhere in the mid-Miocene, the continents aligned in such a way that they began to develop oceanic currents that have defined climate patterns for the most part since. The big one that we've got in California, in fact, the one that brings us the thing that we call the Mediterranean climate, which exists in six spots around the world you've got it in in uh 
you've got it in uh well the mediterranean but you but better examples exist in california in chile in south africa in australia where you always have it on the west coast right no mediterranean climate is defined by these uh, very moist cool winters and then these very hot dry summers and that's what we've got here in california it's a textbook excellent classic example uh of a clockwork system uh what california also has of course is the el nino oscillation in the eastern pacific that brings the atmospheric rivers every once in a while too like california rarely gets a year of like average rainfall like it never, that never happens there's no averages in california right so we right. we have these we have these amazing amplitudes of 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 precipitation from year to the next you know that this the cycles of flood and drought um now uh uh what has happened now, of course, very quickly, is 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 a uh, anthropogenic, quite literally, monkeying with the system, human sourced carbon dumping to the tune of gosh, what are we what are we doing now? We're doing forty thousand megatons per year of CO two into the atmosphere as a species. Um, 40 billion tons of CO2. Uh, and what that is doing is sure, global warming, uh, uh, temperature is ticking up uh, faster, um, and it's sparking all of these cascading effects within these ancient systems of climate regulation. When in fact, you have now, as I call it in the book, I don't. I don't refer to um, global warming as much, I think, or, or climate change. I, I don't say climate change at all. I think that's sort of anesthetized language. I also think that, that, that it doesn't encompass the gravity of the emergency. I call it climate breakdown because that's more like what it's going to happen. What's going to happen. Like we're going to have, we're going to have more rain in, in some, some years we're going to have more rain bombs. And yet we're also going to have snow drought. Okay, so like different, these different like categories of, of uh, what, uh, what um, the, effect, the weather effects of climate breakdown are actually going to be. Because remember, the Sierra Nevada, California gets its water, a lot of it, a lot of, you know, the, the human society gets its water from uh, that snow which falls and stays frozen in the Sierra Nevada. That's our water tower, and it's all about the snow. And of course, snow is is related to temperature. I wonder if you know, as we're as we're brainstorming, as we're thinking stridently about what twenty second century conservation policy might be, which is a conversation we need to be having right now, and we are. Uh, if if it's not just endangered species, but endangered phenomena, like for example coastal fog as a necessary agent for the redwoods the old growth redwood forests a genetic legacy that goes back 300 million years coastal fog is necessary and yet now it's becoming an endangered phenomenon what if winter itself were to be labeled an endangered phenomena and thus accorded legal protections what if winter had its day in court i think that uh, uh 
we are creative enough a people and i think that we are we are able to to find that language of course it's probably got to be a better poet than me i think your concept of winter winter getting uh, as an endangered species is a, has a lot of merit and i mm. and i hope it gets widely discussed i i do want to come back to my naive question because for me Water, water, <laughs> either yes. goes down into the earth, right, or it gets evaporated. Wh- yeah, unless wh- humans are involved. Well, if humans are involved, uh, where else can it go? Though, if humans involved and they move it with dams, with canals, and so on, they're still basically dealing with it's either going to go in the ground or it's going to evaporate. Am I missing something? Is there a third place that water can go? Well, the ground, the ground is, um, is the problem. Well, yeah, no, well, you see, it's not going into the ground with drip irrigation. It's going into the trees. It's going into the almonds, most of which are shipped to China. Um, you know, so, so each almond you, you, each almond you eat is a gallon of water. You can just say that, you know, so think, think, think of, think of the, the the cost there so it's transformed right ecology is also the study of energy transformation okay so, but what what i take that to mean then is that you've got to water that almond tree uh, that's right with a gallon in order to produce the almond but right. when you, in well, these alkali desert soils that don't have any aquifer underneath them so and then and then if it's evaporation it goes into the atmosphere but of course now that our temperature is ticking up we're seeing we're seeing climate breakdown, so we're seeing a whole a whole shifting of of ocean currents that determine where and when the rain fall. The only way we see fresh water again is through rain. So, but the only way we can lose our ball of fresh water mm-hmm. is if when it leaves and goes up through evaporation and then comes down again, it comes down in the ocean and becomes salty water. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if it comes down again somewhere else where there's earth, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're in effect getting it back. We're just getting mm-hmm. it back somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I think I think maybe the miss the missing piece you you're 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 leaving out there, Doctor Miller, yes. might be time. Okay, so like uh, when I said that the the ball of fresh water is thirty five miles across, um, that includes all of the water underground, all of the fresh water underground. So we've got. Uh, under the the California aquifer is huge, it's a huge underground lake ostensibly inside of the porous rock that is underneath our feet, and that aquifer took tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, to develop its robust state, and we have no idea how big really that aquifer is. We just keep punching holes and drilling deeper. Like yes. I was saying before, 200 feet. Now we're down to 2,400 feet, and that's across the board. We're seeing subsidence in the land, right? Because the whole land is sinking, and it will never come back up. In in eastern San Joaquin Valley, we are seeing land subsidence of 14 feet. Like are, are, are you the, suggesting that the that the diameter of the globe is decreasing? No. No, <laughs> no, no, no. The, well, the diameter of the globe, um, you know, I mean, that's a, the, 14 feet is nothing. Uh, well, uh, 5,000 feet is nothing. I mean, if if 
you know you, remember those 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 topographic maps that like like if you run your finger across and like the the the, the mountains have you know little ridges and then valleys yeah. and stuff and it's like that is so out of scale of what is actually happening i mean the distance from the lowest piece of the lowest the lowest point on the earth's surface is the uh, marianas trench okay 5000 feet below the the uh, you know a mile well i think it's a little bit bigger it's it's more than a mile down underneath the ocean off the uh, in the western pacific the highest the highest peak is is uh is is mount everest 29000 feet right so that that is uh that's a difference of just like 7 or 8 miles like if you were to take the earth and condense it down to the size of the cue ball it would be the smoothest cue ball that it impossibly milled like there's the, like there it's the <laughs> The the Earth is huge. <laughs> you know? I mean, uh, the the diameter of the Earth is such that a seven mile difference difference from the tallest point to the lowest point is nothing. Thank the you. Earth is very smooth. Okay, so so fourteen feet is nothing. So I'm yeah. not I'm not saying yeah we we don't have an influence that big. You know, in fact, I would like to just pull back for a moment and just everybody can take a deep breath over what we are not doing. <laughs> we are not destroying the earth. How about that? We are not we are not killing the planet. We can't. If we if we were standing on a mountain peak. This is a metaphor, right? We're standing on a mountain peak, and this mountain represents history in the field of time and we're looking to the metaphoric west and we're seeing the beginning of all life four billion years ago in the deep hadian when we are when 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 just the first the first the first inklings of 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 proteins began to go on their way to assemble themselves we look to the, the to the metaphoric east then and we see the end of all life on planet earth that too is about the same distance away about four billion years when the core of our you know hot sun begins to shrink and and brighten on uh, within its own solar evolution and and it warms up to where it eventually uh evaporates all the ocean and burns off even all the bacteria on planet earth that too is the same distance away we are in the middle of the long story of the history of life on planet Earth. And there's nothing that we can do about that. The only decision that we have to make is how much of that future we want to see. How much do we want to witness? We as a species. We as a species, exactly right. The only thing that happens to every species is extinction. Extinction happens, it's axionomic to all organisms. All species go extinct. And this is the way nature remakes itself. Let, Let us consider 10 million years into the future, okay? 10 million years in the future, the San Andreas Fault will continue its conveyor belt the way it is, and the Baja Peninsula will become the island of Peninsula. In 10 million years, the uh, 
the the island of Baja will become a suburb of the archipelago of San Francisco. And on that island, given what we know about island biogeography, that will be a place of undreamt of biodiversity, given, uh, you know, it will be recovering from the sixth mass extinction that we're going through now, and it will be species that we can't imagine. We have no idea what they're going to look like. Will placental mammals even still be the, the, the you know, have the day? Uh, who's to say and who's to know? And I don't find that to be a gloomy thought at all, that this world can, will and does and contains its massive ability to uh, change and, and adapt and survive given enough time. Maybe this is a time I can... Uh... Dr. Miller, are you back? Oh yes, I'm back. Okay, very thank good. you. Yeah, we had some te- we had some technical problems there, and I was about to to give you my vision of where I think we as a species are are uh, are headed. Oh please. Um, <laughs> well, I think what's going to happen is that um, we're going to be able to accumulate uh, mm-hmm. all the information that we have accumulated on the planet. And we're going to be able to download that information onto a chip. And then we're going to do uh, the same kind of thing to what we call consciousness. And we're going to accumulate the data that we call consciousness. And we're going to be able to download that onto a chip. Mm. And when we have that combination of consciousness and, and knowledge... And I'm not certain whether consciousness will include wisdom. That's an important question, but I mm. don't know. I don't have a sense of that. Mm. But consciousness and, and, and information will be on a chip. That chip will be inserted into a robot. Uh, the robot will have an uh, external skin that will be a, uh, analogous to what we now call photovoltaic cells. And it'll get all of its uh, energy from sunlight and needing very little sunlight to fully uh, energize itself. So it will be a totally self-sufficient organism that will neither require uh, fuel, nor will it uh, evacuate, uh, and the uh, parts will all be um, uh, easily uh, interchangeable. And, um, and I, I see that's the next developmental stage uh, for us. And I, I think what they will do is keep us uh, on reservations or what we presently call zoos uh, <laughs> as as reminders of what uh, of what we were uh, in a particular developmental period uh, and and that's that's my vision of uh, of what we're, of where we're headed and so um but that's not going to happen for uh, you know so, uh, uh, quite a period of time so that everything that you're saying is still entirely relevant and and more than relevant and what you're saying is actually critical. Uh, I mean, I'm so uh, involved and impressed and interested in what you're saying uh, that uh, I mean, I am moved, sir. I am, mm. I am, I am moved, and and I'm, uh, I'm wanting to. Already, the back of my mind is spinning on how to do everything possible that I can to support the effort to get your information out. Mm. Uh, I think it's it's really it, you're saying it 
in a coherent way, in a logical, deductive way. You're saying it based on a combination of, uh, of science and art, which is imperative, as many of us know, uh, and it needs to be heard. It need, because you're, you're well-reasoned and you're balanced, uh, right? And, and, you, and you're listening to yourself as you talk, and I'm aware of that. Uh, you, you can hear yourself uh, like as you did when you used the word capitalism and then retracted it, realizing that that's a dead hole because of the uh, various the baggage that gets uh, attached to the use of words in our culture, mm. uh, right? You could quickly be called uh, that dirty word. Uh, uh, you said communist. You, you could even be you could even be called a dirty word short of communism, socialist. Oh my, uh, goodness, my yes, gosh! Yeah, yeah, right. he- he- heaven forbid. <laughs> uh, right. So. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm very much understanding that. Do you want to go on, or do you uh, uh, do you want to stop here? We, we have an option. Uh, well, I I would like to thank you for that for that uh, kind afterward, and and I would love to continue the conversation uh, with you. I just could I just completed my fourth manuscript for the coasts of California. And as I'm realizing that my interest in time, right, where the, uh, where the, where the force of California might be the story of, of, of time across California's natural landscape, the coasts of California is a story of right now. It's a snapshot, a time capsule, if you will. The deserts of California, my next book will be about the future. So maybe we will. We, what, what did you describe there? You described autotrophic sapient synthoids, right? That yeah. uh, <laughs> so, and <laughs> that's quite a vision. Um, uh, but yeah, Doctor Miller, let's 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 call it a day for now, yes. and and then and then and then pick this up again soon, shall we? Definitely, I'd like to. I'd love to do a series with you if you're open on open to that. Oh, I'm uh, touched. I would love uh, that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's terrific. Then we will do it. But allow me just a, a few more questions, a, a couple of questions before uh, be, before we uh, before we part for today. Sure. Um, your mom's a clinical psychologist. Yes. Well, she was for many years. She was. You want to throw out throw out a couple of comments about growing up with a clinical psychologist? Yes. My my mother is now skiing most of the time in uh she's moved to Truckee in the early 90s and uh she still runs a healing practice she has moved on to energetic uh healing modalities she uh has um in her mind uh reached a limit of what clinical psychology can actually do you know i mean you you started your your monologue today talking about religion and and she joked once that she really appreciated the the Catholic religion for one because it gave her a, a lucrative career for so many decades <laughs> working through working through with that with with that religion in particular did to the people of Danville where her practice was I thought and I and I just put that forward as sort of a, mm-hmm. a, a humorous anecdote. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, my mom went uh, to work every day to and um, 
when I was growing up and my father wrote textbooks on astrophysics. And, yes. uh, and so I came home from school after, after scamping around uh, Mount Diablo for a couple of hours, it was, it was a couple hours of, of calculus homework every night with dad. Uh, he was, he was, uh, he was going to make a, uh, he was going to make mold rather. He was going to mold a mathematician out of me. And uh, of course uh, I ended up becoming a painter. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, uh, he, he, he left us a couple of decades ago, but I think he'd be, he'd be satisfied with the, uh, with the uh, legacy of, of, of intellectualism that I pour into my work. In fact, you know, I spent so long trying to not become, my father and here I am making big sprawling books of nature too. So that uh, I remember, you know, I mean, more to your question. I remember when I was a, uh, a young boy, must've been about 10 or wherever I um, was riding in the back seat, sitting in the middle of the car. My father was driving, my mother was in the passenger seat and I, in, in a more inquisitive introspective moment, I said, I wonder where truth is hidden in the universe. And right like that, my parents both answered at the same time. My father said physics and my mother said psychology. <laughs> exactly. It's a joke. Thank you. Yes, we still laugh about this, about that to this day. Um, I think that if my adult self had been sitting there and could answer too, I would say story. I would say that it is, it is in the relationship between community in between the, the the stuff of our humanity the particular story that we have here on this planet that defines truth and thus reality thank you mm-hmm. thank you very much for being here today thank i look I, I look forward to doing the series that we've agreed upon that we're <laughs> going to do together i love it i love it sir And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, with special thanks to my producer, Charlie Deist, who makes this broadcast possible, and a shout-out to our new marketing director, uh, and maybe beyond that, Pamela Bieri, who has joined us. The preceding program was brought to you in part by Thanksgiving Coffee, The founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Katzif, is a social worker and a political activist who's improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. Paul so much appreciates mind, body, health, and politics that he created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends. He donates 20% of all internet sales of the mind, body, health, and politics special blends to the COVID Response Network. Please look that up on Google, the covidresponsenetwork.net. It's a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. Following COVID or along with COVID, this COVID Response Network is going to morph into the Coastal Resilience Network, the Coastal Resilience Network, which is going to create various ways of sustaining this coastal community. Go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website and buy buy Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee and support us and support the COVID Response Network. Uh, Please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time 
for our next stimulating broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.